Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You thought we were done with Christmas. We still have the decorations though, so we have to do something. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 to 38. So if you can, if you'd stand with me and follow as I read this passage, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You can be seated, but I want to ask you a question as I read that. You'll notice the angel Gabriel used two names for God. He used the same name twice. In verse 32, he called Jesus the Son of the Most High. And in verse 35, he said, The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Why does Gabriel use that name for God? And if you looked at your notes this morning, you notice we're studying Abraham this morning. What does this have to do with Abraham? And even more, what does this have to do with us? Turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And look for a second at verse chapter 12 of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis this morning. But I want to remind you first that before we get to chapter 13, Abram, he's still, Abraham is still known as Abram here. Abram has made two choices already. In chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he's told by the Lord to leave where he was at, go to a place that he had no clue where he was going. And Hebrews tells us that he went out not even knowing where he was going. And because he made that choice to obey God, what's going to happen? Verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This choice, doing what God said, would lead to blessings. Look over at verse 10. When he got to the land and God told him he was in the right place, right after that, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He makes a decision on his own to choose to go to Egypt without consulting God. 
It doesn't work out well for his testimony for God. Works out great for his possessions. He gets more stuff to leave with him when he's kicked out of Egypt. But when he leaves Egypt, he also leaves with a servant girl called Hagar. This choice will not end well for Abram. So with that background, we get to verse 13. He's been kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. When he's kicked out of Egypt, made a bad choice, he goes back to Canaan, to Bethel, where he had been, where the Lord had said, this is the land. And why did he go there? Because he knew that was the last place he did something right. And you see on the map, in the blue is where he went back to Canaan, where Israel is now from Egypt. And that's where he had been before he left there to go to Egypt. And he went back to Bethel, same reason we should go back to what we knew we should have done right in the first place. We're told in Revelation chapter 2. To one of the churches, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And that's what Abram does. He goes back to the last place he talked to God and tries to get back where he should have been. What kind of year have you had with God? Is it time to get back where you should have been? And make the choices you know God wants you to make because that's what Abram does. Now another development at this time was Lot had also become wealthy. You're looking at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great they couldn't dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So now you have so much between the two of them, there's competition for resources. And there's going to be strife between families. How do you handle strife between families? Didn't have any of that this last week, did you? Usually we don't handle that well because we usually don't, we expect more from our families than to do from others. And so we try to press in issues the way we shouldn't. And Abram's going to have to find a solution to this. And in his case, he's figured out when what happened in Egypt was not going to go well, he needs to find a peaceful solution. The same thing we're told in James chapter 3. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So how will he deal with this strife in family? Verse 8, And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. 
You realize in this choice, Abram is giving up his control of his future because he's going to go the opposite way that Lot goes. He's going to demonstrate he learned something in Egypt. I'm going to trust God. Now you realize Abram should have been the one to make the choice. Abram was the elder. Abram was the one that Lot should have said, you were the one who should go first. And Abram says, no, you go first. I'll take whatever God gives me. Now we're going to remind him here that Lot didn't do well with this. How did Lot make his choice? Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Lot makes a decision by what he could see. And what he saw showed, hey, if I go this way, everything's well watered. Greed over gratitude. Who the one had provided for him all this time? Abram. Who's the one that had been, been so he could get all the wealth that Lot had? Abram. And Lot turns and takes the best. He chooses possible wealth over family. He trusted himself rather than trusting God because he doesn't even ask God, what should I do? In fact, you got your little note there in uh, verse 12. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And also verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Did Lot already know that before he went? And he goes anyway because this was the best business decision. This is where the cities of the valley were. More cities, more people, more business for my flocks. And we're not studying this this morning, but you remember Lot's choice is going to lead to disaster for his family because he doesn't choose wisely. We don't want to forget, God tells us this, how should we make choices? Matthew 6, seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Well, that doesn't go for business decision, does it? Business is different. What does James tell us? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's the right thing to do in my plans? Always consult God. Always figure out, what does God have to do with what I'm going to choose to do? Some of you are thinking about things you're going to do next year. Consulting God at all? Thinking about how God, what God has to do with what you're going to do? Think about what Lot's decision is going to lead to. It's not going to go well. Well, what's going to happen to Abram, though? Verse 14. 
God gives him some more details about what he's going to do for Abram. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. First God reassures Abraham, I've got you covered. You're going to have more offspring than can be counted. And remember at this time, Sarah is barren. He's been promised offspring, but he's not been told how he's going to get it. But God still says, I'll take care of it. You're going to have more than you can count. And the land that you've seen, as far as you can look, north, south, east, and west, is land I'm going to give to your, you and to your people. If you look at that on a map of the Middle East, the red outlines Basically, what that land was that God promised Abram and his descendants. Israel won't get it till the millennial kingdom, but they will get this land. Somebody tell you, Israel doesn't deserve their land. God gave that land to them and more. And so even though Lot had chose one area, you realize Lot's area is included in Abram's promise. Abram lost nothing by letting Lot choose first. In fact, he gained way more that God blessed that. And so he relocates to Hebron, and again, there he built an altar to the Lord. He puts God in his first place because God is taking care of him. Now you get to chapter 14. And chapter 14 can be confusing because there's all sorts of weird names in chapter 14. And it may be a little hard to figure out what's going on. It's been a few years since Lot and Abram have separated. We don't know how many years, but it has been some years. It's been some time between the two chapters. And you look and it tells you in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Shedolaimer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. That tells you what it's known by now. Twelve years they had served Keto Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keto Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shabeth Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Familiar with all those names? And don't ask me if I pronounced them right. Sounded good, didn't it? <laughs> what are we being told here? In the meantime, 
In this area where Abram and Lot were, especially where Lot was, a coalition of kings from the east had formed a single army and for 12 years had been raiding Canaan and really the whole area and had made them into vassal cities to pay heavy taxes to this king. You can see from this chart, the kings from the east came from up here, joined together, conquered this whole area, came back around this way, This is where Sodom and Gomorrah would be. And all these cities in this whole area were paying taxes to these kings. Very interesting. The area is not that dissimilar to what God just promised Abram. So for 12 years, they'd been taking taxes from all these cities. And finally in year 13, Five kings decide that live in the area from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other ones. They've had enough of this, that they were going to rebel and put off Keto Laomer and his cohorts and get away from them. And so they've decided it has to stop. So you get to verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zoboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Well, this battle turned out well for the five kings who lived in the area, didn't it? They're so incompetent, they can't even keep out of the tar pits in their own area. So in year 14, Keto Larimer makes them all pay, and instead of just taking taxes, he takes everything. People, possessions, flocks, everything he can get. He and the other kings take with him, and they head north. And that's this other side of the map. So they conquered here and headed clear north. They're heading back now from where they came from, going back east. Now you wonder, what's this whole story for? Well, you just saw it in verse 12. It's continuing the story of Abram and the story of Lot. Because they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Lot and everything he had, which he thought was a great business decision, were taken by these kings. And the question might be, well, what might Abram do when he hears about this? Because you and I would think, you made your bed, Lot, your problem. Right? This is not my problem, this is your problem. But verse 13, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram hears about this. This is family. No matter what they've done, he's going to do what he can to protect Lot. 
he mobilizes 318 trained servants. When it says born in their house, the idea in the Hebrew is these are not purchased. These are willing servants, willing slaves. Really, you might call a willing army that has been trained. 318 highly trained individuals that go with Abram and head north. They march 100 miles north toward this army that had left. He pursues them another 59 miles past Damascus, attacks them at night, which they would not have been expecting, and defeats them. And so you see here on the left in red, this is where Abram would have been. He pursues them up here, defeats them here, and pushes them another 60 miles out of the area to make sure they're completely gone and won't ever bother anything here again. And then verse 16 tells you what happened. Abram brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram captures everything these kings took and brings it all back to the area that it was taken from. Nice story, isn't it? But now we get to somewhat the purpose of this story. Because you get to verses 17 on, and when Abram comes back, he meets with two kings who have two totally different focuses on what should go on, on what should happen, on what should be done. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. In verse 21, the king of Sodom says to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom's focus is totally on the stuff. And by the way, the people were part of his stuff. He doesn't want his people back because he just loves them so much. No people, no king needed. So it's a way for him to keep in power. So his focus is on the stuff. The stuff is what's most important. We got all the stuff back. As long as I got my people back, Abram, you can keep all the goods. He meets a second king in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of... We've seen that name before? God Most High. There's our name. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. The king of Salem, which later would be called Jerusalem, Melchizedek, whose name means righteousness, which means that was his focus, focuses on the worship of God Most High. He tells Abram what your focus, Abram, should be now is not the goods and the people. The focus should be God Most High. That's who I want you to think about. Well, why does God give us that name, God Most High? What are the characteristics of that name? The name comes from the Hebrew El Elyon. El is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated in your English translation every time you see the name God. That's that name, the Creator God. Elyon is the Hebrew word for highest. 
So it's the Most High or the Most High God, and God revealed Himself by that name throughout the Old Testament and then the New Testament for a purpose. And the first purpose was to tell us His position. His position is Most High. Psalm 97.9, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Who is over God? Nobody. Not even us. Nobody controls God. God is over everything and everyone. He is the most high. And in verse 19, Melchizedek calls him the possessor of heaven and earth. Some of you have little notes that say creator. A better name than this would be owner. This is the one who owns everything. Everything belongs to the Most High. Psalm 50 tells us this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is the God who can deliver us because he owns everything that can deliver us. He controls everything that is around us. He's the owner of everything you got for Christmas. Thirdly, when he uses this name, God Most High, it's to remind us that God is the God of purpose. That God Most High has a purpose for all he has and all he does. Psalm 57.2 says, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. When we read in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel uses this name for God with Mary, did he have a purpose for Mary? Clear, wasn't it? When Jesus is called Son of the Most High, did he have a purpose for Jesus? Has he got a purpose for us? Always. God Most High is not just a figurehead sitting up on the throne. God Most High is someone with a plan and a purpose for those that he owns. Fourthly, when you say God Most High, it reminds us that God has the power to bring about all his purposes. Didn't we see that in Luke 1? He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Did God have the power to bring about the virgin birth? No problem. Did he have the power to establish Jesus as the one who would reign forever? No problem. 
because he's the most high. Now, when Abram is presented with that name of God by Melchizedek, what reaction, what response, what will it cause Abram to do to be reminded that God's most high? Look at verse 20. The first thing it says, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First thing he does is give. Now he gave to the priest the God most high, but he was giving to God most high. And you understand this was freely. This was not demanded by the law. The Mosaic law doesn't come into play until a number of years after this. This was before law. When he's reminded God is God most high, his first response is to give to him. Interesting, David doesn't use this name when he talks about the giving he collected for the temple, but he uses the idea. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly or to give as generously as this? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. How was your giving this past year? How was your giving this morning? If he's God most high, yeah, he owns it all. He also deserves it all. Aren't we told that in 2 Corinthians 9? As it is written, he has distributed freely. God has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Each one must give as he had decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? And not under duty. We don't give 10% because we have to. We give it because he's God most high. Who else will we give it to? Your giving will tell if you know God by this name. Because the first thing Abram does when he's confronted by this name is he, his view of giving comes out immediately. He's got to give him 10% of all he has. By the way, Mary was introduced to the name God Most High. And what did Mary immediately give to him? You remember? Herself. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. This is a God that doesn't deserve just my stuff. He deserves me. What's well, the second thing Abraham, Abraham has to think about? He has to think about his view of his possessions. Verse 21, the king of Sodom had said, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. Now you know the battles that would take place back there. If you conquered people, did you deserve to have all their stuff? The answer was, that was the spoils of war, right? You deserve to take it all. And even if you didn't, it's finders, weepers, lo keepers, losers, weepers, isn't it? Isn't that how it works? 
Abram says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Isn't that interesting that Abram wouldn't take anything, but it was his right to take it, wasn't it? Now what Abram knew was it wasn't his to keep. He wouldn't have gotten any of this unless God Most High had let him have it. By the way, I'll remind you of something. It's probably more important to figure out how much God wants you to keep than even how much He wants you to give and what you do with what you keep. Because God owns it all. And in this case, Abram undecides, this is all God's, it all belongs to God, and I'm not keeping any of it. Remember David said that in 1 Chronicles 14? What are we that we can offer thus willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to God. What's your view of your stuff? Is your stuff more important than God? Second thing, he wanted no connection with the attitude of the king of Sodom. He says, I won't take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I don't want anybody to think, Abram said, that I had the view of possessions that you've got, king of Sodom. You think they're the most important thing. I'm telling you, they're not important at all. They're God's. We won't go back to Luke chapter 12. You can read that for yourself. But remember, Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells a story of a guy who had so much, he tore down his barns and built bigger ones so he could keep all his stuff and eat, drink, and be merry. More storage units. And God said, you fool. Tonight your soul's required of you, and then who's going to get all your stuff? So is the one who thinks totally about his own stuff, but is not rich toward God. When you think of God as God most high, you can't put your stuff first. Thirdly, he had to think about what prestige meant. Because up in verse 20, even though Melchizedek, blessed be Abram, a God most high, he says, verse 20, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Understand, Abram, the only power for you to do anything came from God. Remember in Luke chapter 1, what was the thing told Mary? Nothing's impossible with God. It's all impossible with us. Anything you were able to do, it wasn't because you were so great. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and your hand are power and might, and your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. In Deuteronomy, the children of Israel were reminded when they got in the land, beware lest you stay in your heart. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Daniel reminded Belshazzar this, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
If we have anything, it came from El Elyon, the Most High God, who allows us to have it and allows us to do it. And so Abraham takes nothing for himself because he wants to show everybody here that anything he had of prosperity came from God. And the focus was the Most High, not the stuff. Interesting in verse 24. Abram makes sure he under, they, the rest of them understand this is personal. This is from his view of God. He doesn't force it on anybody else. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. He doesn't force others to abide by their convictions because you have to make your own decisions to what to do with God. I can't force you to do it, and neither could Abram. But interesting, if you study Abram, he never seems overly impressed with what he does. His view of God keeps him humble. So question, do you know God as God most high this morning? If you do, there's at least two things you can do. One, you can do what Melchizedek did. Psalm 7 says, I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord the most high. Hopefully you've already done that this morning. Or you could do what Abram did with the king of Sodom. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Isn't that interesting in Luke? God Most High. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful you've revealed yourself to us by all sorts of names which remind us who you are. And this morning, I trust all of us have to decide if we know you as God Most High. Help us to evaluate our giving and our stuff and taking credit for where it doesn't go, and help us to do nothing but make this personal. To know you as the God that you are. So we give all the glory to you. Amen.